how many times in your life have you been told you can't do something? Oh, you can't do that because, well, many actually, times. that's just not true. <laughs> and in fact, what's quite funny is probably the same for you as well. Most people, if you tell me I can't do something, then I'll sure as hell try and prove you wrong. <laughs> From Positive Momentum, this is Meet the CEO, a show that takes you behind the scenes of the working lives of people who've reached what some might call the pinnacle of the career ladder. I'm Julie Hennigan, a partner at Positive Momentum, and on today's show, we have the pleasure of meeting Joe Cox, the group CEO of Ireland's Energy Group. Ireland's Energy Group is the leading energy management services business located in Guernsey, Jersey, in the Isle of Man. The group's aim is to transform the company from a traditional gas services organisation to a role model for net zero, delivering energy home services for every generation. The group wants to be known for leading the way with innovative thinking, attracting forward-thinking creative employees that want to leave behind a legacy for a small island where they can make a huge impact. Joe joined Ireland's Energy Group in July 2021 as the group CEO from Calvin Capital a UK-based investment firm specialising in acquisition, management and operation of energy and utility infrastructure assets. Prior to Calvin Capital, Joe was the European Commercial Officer at Centrica Connected Homes. Joe has a deep and extensive experience and a solid and proven track record in leading and accelerating growth within the energy, telecoms and technology sector. And Joe has held senior leadership positions at Hive, Shaw and Vodafone. Outside of work, Joe enjoys an active family life with a husband, son and daughter and a family dog. Joe has a passion for skiing and can often in the winter months be found hurtling down the side of a mountain or watching her children and husband participate in their favourite sporting activities. I'll start as we always do on Meet the CEO by asking Joe, why did you become a CEO? Hi Julie, thanks so much for inviting me here today actually. I think it's a, a real passion of mine for me to be able to tell the story of why I chose this route um, because it's been a crazy route and I think you know me but I'm a twin and one of my biggest drivers to become a CEO is, is almost about proving a point so it's not really about the title um, although some of it is so it's it's quite funny when you ask me this question I reflected on it and I thought there are two things about me. First of all, I really like driving the bus and not being a passenger on it. <laughs> so it starts <laughs> with that. Um, and when you're a CEO, you do get to decide on the destination. You do decide who gets on and off the bus and you do decide what bus you get to drive. Right. So so all of the, the glory that comes with a CEO is true. But it didn't start with that. For me, it started with. I come from a not a privileged background, but I'm a twin and my my mother and father split up and my father had a, a, a lot more wealth and my brother chose to go that route and had quite a different route through education. So he went to King's College, did a PhD, did the classic route, went through university, etc. And I stayed with my mum in a small house and went through typical school and started working at 16. And what I wanted to do is I had an inner drive improving a point that you don't have to take a traditional route to become a success. I think historically and culturally, we in the UK have believed that you have to follow this path. Otherwise, there's no way you can become a CEO on a board. Right. And actually, 
What I do believe is it's about, it starts with your belief system. So do I believe that I'm I'm really good at what I do? Do I believe that there's a development and uh, that's needed? Yes. Um, and, and do I have a vision, right? And a lot of people that don't actually become something like a CEO or whatever they choose to do actually is because they don't have a vision. So they, they, so they float around and it's accidental. I didn't always know I wanted to be a CEO, but I did know I wanted to determine my own path. And so having that vision statement of what do I want to be when I grow up? Well, I don't know what I want to be, but I want to know that I'm in control of my own destiny. And I want to know that I've driving the bus started with that. And then what you have to do is work your way back. Well, what has to be true to, to make that possible? Well, you have to have breadth, don't you? You have to have experience. Okay. So you decide, right, I want to do sales. Oh, I'm quite good at sales. But actually, in order to become someone that has full, widened experience, I have to expose myself to marketing, operations, etc. But having that vision, it starts with that, and you work your way down from that. But ultimately, there was one reason that I wanted to become a CEO. And that's because when I'm done on my career, and I finish proving a point, and I've got to the top of the career ladder, I want to be able to go into schools, underprivileged schools, and tell my story because I am a twin and we took very different paths. He took the traditional route. I took a very non-traditional route. But becoming a CEO gives me that credibility because it's no longer a if you, maybe you should, have you thought about. It's about a real story that proves to everybody it isn't about what anybody else tells you. It's about what you believe. It's about what you want. And if anybody wants to be anything in the world, they just have to start with understanding what it is they want. And then they have to make themselves believe that they're capable of doing it. And, and I can prove that point with a lot of very clear examples about how that's possible. So ultimately, I became a CEO because I had A, a point to prove, and B, I want children that have a different belief system, I want to change their belief system. So if two children walk out of that school with a different belief system and think anything is possible, then I've done my job. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. And I think you're saying it with such heartfelt as well, because it's something as an experience you've gone through and that whole genuine reasons why you did it. And it, as you say, it wasn't necessarily a, a competition between you and your twin brother, but it was more you were determined to do it in your way. I yeah, story. I think how many times in your life have you been told you can't do something? Oh, you can't do that because, well, many actually, times. that's just not true. <laughs> and in fact, what's quite funny is probably the same for you as well. Most people, if you tell me I can't do something, then I'll sure as hell try and prove <laughs> you wrong. <laughs> and I've seen you do it, Joe. so we won't go into that on this, on this one, but we'll do it perhaps another time. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so just thinking about your day and what you do, um, what part of your day is sacrosanct and preserved at all costs? I think that this is a really interesting question because I think it changes dependent on where you are in your stage of life. So when I was earlier in my career, there was one thing that I used to ring fence, was, which was my children's bath and bed. So everybody that worked for me knew that from five to seven, I was off the grid because there are certain times in your life, and you do have to become quite selfish because I think in the world that we're in today, where we're flexible working, we can all work from teams, you blend your work life and your personal life too much. And actually setting the guardrails with everyone that works for you or who you work for 
is possible and important. So every boss, when I had really young children, I used to say, just so you know, up in, from five till seven, I'm off grid, but I'll be back online at you know 7.30 and I'll catch up. I hope that's okay. Most people, 99.9% .9 of people are really reasonable and say, sure, no problem at all. But you've set a time in your day that is non-negotiable. Now, of course, there's like the, the odd time where you just have to say, oh, well, today is critical and I absolutely have to be there. But but as a rule, my five to seven time with my children bath and bed was was the time I was I was not prepared to give up. And they'll always remember that because they had stories with me most nights. I think now it's quite different because the kids are more independent. They, you know, we don't do bath and bed anymore because they're in their teens. So now I have a new routine, which is I get up in the morning at six o'clock, whether it's dark or light. And we've got a big garden with an outside pergola. And what my husband and I do is we phones aren't out until 7, 7.30. And we have a big, massive cup of tea. And we put our big coats on and we go and sit outside because there's something about fresh air and a huge cup of tea to start your day with no phones, no devices. And you spend the first, we spend our first hour together. And actually, even when I'm away, we still do it because I do it on, I literally phone him and I pick up the phone and make a cup of tea and we still do it together, even though Brilliant. I'm away. Yeah. Um, and it's because that hour of, otherwise you hit the ground running, don't you? Your brain wakes up and you're like, blah, 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 work mode. And actually, it's, it's a really good way of keeping the connection with my husband, because when you are busy and when you have a very big, hectic work-life balance, the people in your life, in effect, fall away. And, and therefore, you come out the other side and realize I've got no strong relationships left because I made it all about my job. And at some point, it won't be all about your job. So, um, you know, I think today, now, as I speak to you today, it's about that first hour of the morning and a cup of tea with my husband. Wonderful. What's been the most challenging event during your whole career as a CEO and what did you learn from it? So I think um, you asked me at the most opportune time, right, because there's been a couple of things that have happened in the gas industry. First of all, the on the second day of this job, uh, the biggest gas crisis that we've ever known in the history of the UK hit the UK and the Channel Islands. And if, if I give you an example of how unique it was, when someone asked me, when was the last time you see this, seen this volatility in gas prices? The answer would be never, never, ever, ever had gas been volatile. It had been stable, the same price, lots of volume, and it was driven from a, a, a perfect storm, right? So it was storms hitting America. It was... Um, storms hit in Asia, the Ukraine war. I mean, you couldn't have made it up, right? It was like three huge things that happened all at the same time, hurricanes, all, all sorts. And therefore what happened was it, it, it risked supply. And guess what happens? You know, when you can't get supply, the price of it goes up. And that had never, ever, ever been experienced in the gas market. Been the most stable market with huge profits ever. And on day two of this career, that's the first thing that happened. A huge gas crisis hit where you have to make a decision, how can we absorb this cost? Because when you're a small company, you're not British Gas, the price that you charge to your customers, the minute that that balance shifts, you lose money by the millions per month. And that's exactly what happened. So in the space of three months of me being a CEO, we went from making six million a month to losing six million a month because I was buying gas in at a higher cost than I was selling it. And, and so the reason that was hard is because I, I 
have to make a decision about how I pass that cost on to the consumer. And whilst everyone thinks CEOs are slightly dead inside and make these decisions and they don't really care and it's all about profits, ultimately you do care because you're conscious that there are elderly people that you're in a winter period that potentially won't be able to heat their homes. And so when you're facing that, you are aware of the impact of the decision that you're about to make. And, and that was a, a you know really difficult decision. And then, and then people don't separate you as a human from the title and you get very personal messages. You get personal messages through every avenue, through your messenger, direct emails. They call you all sorts of names. They call you the big fat cat. And do you know what you're doing to me? And my grandma's having to ride the bus, you know, to keep warm every day. And and it is really emotionally difficult because you are a human being at the end of these decisions. But but part of the role of being a CEO is to make really difficult decisions. It The buck stops with you. And that was out of the gates as soon as I took this role. Yeah, Joan, just you know, listening to you now, just the points you pulled out of there, I think, they, and they'll probably come in some of the other questions that we have, but they're, they're real, I think, points for any CEO or you say aspiring CEO to learn from. And for me, what really resonated was around checking in with yourself. I think that is something that I think as a CEO or any leader of any organization probably forgets the most. Yeah. You might do the other things because they're practice that you've learned as you've gone through your career. But I think that one in terms of checking in with yourself, are you okay? Because you're right, if you're not okay as the leader of the organization, then maybe everybody else isn't either. But no, that's, um, again, very genuine, very heartfelt. As I'm listening to you talking about that, I can see you, you know, and hear you reliving some of those um I suppose those things that you've gone through very early on in your in the in this role. So yeah. thank you for sharing those. They were oh, really welcome. good. Thank you. So taking on that point, then in terms of the learnings of your career, who has influenced you the most in the way you lead today? Do you know what? This is the hardest question that you could ask me because I actually think when you become a leader, it's usually made up of multiple ingredients, like a cake, isn't it? So there's never <laughs> there's never one person that I mean there's always people that stand out for you where you go wow you know I would have followed them anywhere but actually when you become a really rounded leader you realize everybody influences you from the bad to the good um but what I would say is there was some there was something that happened really early in my career and I do think it set me on the right path um I did, I did something really early on. I don't know how I did it. It was sort of accidental where I talk about coaches and mentors. And I, when I do development sessions for any of my leadership team and anyone in the business that wants one with me, I will talk to them about a role of a coach and a role of a mentor. And what I say to them is your coach is someone you're prepared to be vulnerable with, someone you trust, but they have to be. I usually pick two coaches, one that's like me because they get in my head and they understand how I'm bouncing off my ideas, but also one that's very opposite to me because they'll make you uncomfortable and they'll challenge your thinking. Um, and it's really important that you get a couple of coaches. Sometimes you can have three, four, five, right? And I had an early coach um, from Ernst & Young, actually. And he, the first thing he told me, which landed with me when I was really young, is the circle of comfort, right? And he drew this diagram and it said, you, you are living in generally a comfort zone and your circle when you're starting off early in your career is this big, you know, it's tiny. And then you have this thing outside of that comfort zone called the uncomfort, right? Uncomfort zone. 
And then you have something called the panic zone. So he drew three big circles, right? And he said, what you have to constantly do every day is make yourself slightly uncomfortable. So what you're naturally doing is expanding your comfort zone. So it becomes huge, but you can never move into panic zone, right? Because then you don't think rationally and you're not delivering well. So when you're doing something, I want you to ask yourself, how uncomfortable is this making me feel, right? Is it slightly uncomfortable? Is it really uncomfortable? Is it panic? And I still think like that today. And I still think, oh, how uncomfortable is this making me feel? Panic, right? I'm not going to do it because I'm not ready for it. And it was a really good trick. And it's something I teach everybody when they're doing dev sessions with me. And I say to them, my job is to make you slightly uncomfortable every day. My job isn't to make you comfortable because otherwise we're all just going to do exactly the same day in, day out. And that's not how change happens. So I always check in with my all of my leadership team and say, how uncomfortable am I making you? Oh, I think I can push you harder. And so, but it's really important for me that I give them something new as an objective all the time, because otherwise they're just floating around being comfortable. So that was one of my coaches. But then I can give you an, an example where I picked a really scary mentor Right. And so your mentor is someone that will really scare you slightly because they're usually quite a bit higher up than you. Right. And I never forget asking this. And I'm sure he won't mind me using his name, Paul Donovan at Vodafone. And he was a big cheese. He was the CEO of a mapper at the time. And I remember us coming back from a client meeting and me saying to him, do you think you would be able to mentor me? And he said, no, I haven't got time. And I said, oh, okay, that's fine then. And then I sat and I was really quiet. And then I said something, which as I was saying it, I couldn't believe it was coming out of my mouth. I said, I'm really disappointed by that response because as a woman in your business, I would have thought you'd be positively encouraging someone that had the balls to ask you. So all I'm asking for is an hour sort of every three months of your time. And he stared at me for ages. So I thought, is he about to fire me? And he suddenly went, that's fair enough. Okay. And he mentored me and he, I can honestly tell you that he scared me for two years of my life, but he made me who I am because he taught me something. And it's this belief system thing, right? He said, when you, when you look at yourself, you have to think, what do people think of me when I walk in a room? And that's an unconscious bias. It's unconscious bias. Some of it is just straight up bias, right? And so we talked about International Women's Day yesterday. There is a bias sometimes when you walk in the room and people go, you're a woman, right? And he said, just that's just the thing of life, Joe. You know, there's no point in getting cross about it. You're walking in the room, you're blonde, you're a woman, right? It starts with a negative for most people. And if you walk into a boardroom, they'll probably dismiss you after two minutes. So I'm going to teach you something. And I said, okay. And he said, I'm going to teach you that for the first five minutes of whatever comes out of your mouth, you have to prove your credibility. And it has to wow everybody, Right. And I'll tell you exactly where I used it because he used to practice it with me and say, that's not good enough. No, too fluffy. Right, try it again. And he used to really practice me. It used to uh, terrify me. And he said to me one day, right, now I've just seen you use it brilliantly. We had a massive meeting with the CEO of a really big bank. And I'd spent the time to read his annual report before he walked in the door. And when he walked in the door, I said, oh, good morning. It's really interesting. I was reading your annual report yesterday, and I noticed that your age pack area has decreased 7% in EBITDA over the last year. What's pushing that and driving that effect? And he actually stopped drinking his coffee and stared at me for a good 42 minutes and then put me in a different box. You could physically see him do it. 
and engaged with, with me through that meeting for the rest of the day because he taught me a tip, which is lamb the credibility, then be yourself. Because now what we've done is we've removed the bias and I've proven why I'm in that room. And it's really funny because I, I rarely have to do it anymore, but actually sometimes I do have to do it. When, when you know you're walking to a room where people are going to have an unconscious bias or sometimes a conscious bias, and it's thanks to him <laughs> that I do that. So there are a couple of key influences in my career, but actually what I would say is everybody influences you, whether it's good or bad, because you get either say to yourself, I'm never going to be like that, or, oh, I really like the way they approach that. I think I'll take that on board as a leader. That's good advice, Joe. Actually, and I've uh, yeah, I'm smiling about your story of uh, of your uh, your mental because uh, I think it's probably set you up to be where yeah. you are today. So we definitely it did definitely a good have. job at, at scaring you. Yeah. <laughs> so we we talked earlier something again that you you talked about, which was which leads me on to my next question, which is around you know some advice to a, a leader or a CEO is the people around you let let them do your job. And that leads really well into my next question, which is what's the secret to an effective exec team? So I think transparency and trust is, is really important because there is a lot of wasted time in politics, as you can probably know from your career, where if you don't trust each other, then you don't let people carry on and do their jobs, right? So you, So I always say to anybody in my team, you are the sum of the people that you put around you. So if you've surrounded yourself by people that are backstabbing and not showing up well, then you are, you are the sum of that. The output will be negative. If you know in your, your mix of people that are in your team, there is a lone wolf or there is someone that isn't a team player and you can spot them a mile away, ultimately they will slow you down. It's like someone putting the brakes on the bus, right? And you can tell by language Right. So they use terminologies like they and them, not us and we. And it's and you can, now I've told you that <laughs> you'll go into meetings and you'll hear them doing it. Right. Because they what they do is they're not accountable and they blame others. So we do, and, and as a leader, I would say you eradicate that really, really fast, because first of all, you decide on what is it that you need around you. So I need someone in marketing. I need someone in sales. I need someone in finance. I need someone in people. And what you do is you pick the really good people that are good at that thing, right? They don't have to be great at all of it, but what they have to do is they'd be really, really good at their thing. And if you empower them and trust them and give them space, they'll be great at that thing because you're not micromanaging them. But it's also really important that you give them very clear expectations because sometimes we think they know, but actually giving them that clarity and, and the, what I do is say, here's my four or five things on my mind. You can add the you know, detail around it. But this is what I think success looks like for me this year in marketing or in sales. And as long as they've got that clarity, they can add the detail. And then they generally come back to me and say, yeah, I think I can do that with these measures. So it's still really important, no matter what, who you are in any part of the organization, that you still provide the guardrails and the structure. That's really, really important because otherwise what you think is true and what I think is true could be different, but we've never had the conversation, so it's neither of our fault. So yeah. having those guardrails are super important, but then giving them the breadth and space to deliver it in their way is really, really important. But most important for me is when I see the they-them behaviour, when I see the lone wolf 
what's in it for me behavior i eradicate it really quickly because it it starts as a weed and then it grows out to be you know the day of the triffids right i've just referenced a really old film so people that are young <laughs> listening to this will go what is day of the triffids it's basically where all the plants take over the world right um but that's what you get if you don't eradicate the weeds what happens is then people start to become resentful like why do they get all the airtime? they moan all the time you know and i'll give you an example where someone new in our organization joined this week and then then they don't report to me that you know, and the first thing that person did when i walked into the office this week was threw their manager under the bus they went oh so it'd be really nice if i got time with my manager and my hackles immediately went up because i thought oh i don't like that and i said have you tried speaking to him about it <laughs> and he went well it'd be good to get time i said have you proactively put some time in the diary well no and i said well why don't you start with that before your behavior is to moan to the CEO when she walks in the door, I don't like that. And so he was sent away yeah. with a clear yeah. his ear. But, but you, they're the watch outs for me. Watch out for that because that's they, them, your fault, not my accountability. I'm not going to provide the solution. What I'm going to do is moan about, I call it passing the monkeys. Just pass <laughs> me a monkey. Don't give me a solution. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So um, effective executive teams are empower and trust them but eradicate the weeds really quickly because it's it just takes over. Good advice, Joe. Good advice. So thinking about challenges, and you've had quite a few challenges and thinking about change, um, what's the biggest change on your horizon? Uh, so I always get brought in, I'm called the change agent, and I always get brought in to fix, not do the BAU. So I've been in this role now for 18 months. I'd probably say in the next 18 months, um, you know, things are, despite the incident, things are transitioning for the better. And the company by the end of this year will be transformed and it won't even look like the one I walked into. And we've come out of the gas crisis and we're, you know, really stable. There's some exciting stuff coming through with testing hydrogen and bio LPG and all the good transformational green stuff. But actually, ultimately, by the end of this year, I'll probably be looking for the next challenge, the next CEO role. So, um it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you, you you go into a company fully committed, but you, you can that can only only take so much of your time. And generally, I I typically do roles for about three years because I really thrive on change and I thrive on making the difference. And once it becomes stable and moves into the fluid BAU, I feel like well, my work here is done and it's time to move on. So probably at the end of this year, I'll be looking for the next challenge. Good. I think I must Please. be slightly mad. <laughs> <laughs> no, driven, driven Joe. <laughs> You've given quite a lot of pieces of advice and kind of sharing on your experience and drawing from that experience throughout this, really. But if I could ask you for three quick pieces of advice for anyone aspiring to become a CAO, what would they be? So for me, the first thing is about be clear about why you want it. Right? Because I think... Some people, and I see it happening all the time, want to be a manager, want to be an MD, want to be a CEO because they want the money and they want the title. It can't be about that because ultimately it's a bit like traveling. You know, when you have a job that, you know, everyone sees you traveling to Singapore and South Africa and they go, oh, isn't your life glamorous? No, it's not. It looks it. But ultimately being a CEO is quite a lonely job because every single buck stops with you. Every decision stops with you. 
it's a bit like being a parent, you know, your children fight all the time and they moan at you. So you get all of that. And anyone that's going into a big job thinking, well, it's a big job and it's salary, it's the wrong driver. I would rethink it. It For me, it's about what is it that you want out of being a CEO and a leader? So my, my driver was very much, I'd like to affect change. I'd like to change people for the better. You know, one of the things I do is around create, creating very clear development structures and cultural change plans. And so be really clear about what is it that you want from the role and test it with other CEOs. Say, is my belief system true? Because actually you get, it's lonely and you get a lot of abuse from everybody, right? Your employees moan they're not paid enough. Your customers moan that your energy prices are too expensive and they send you horrible emails. <laughs> and it's lonely, right? You don't get feedback. Like when you're in a career and you're going up the ladder, you get feedback and people say, oh, well, thank you, Julie, for that wonderful piece of work. No one says that because it's expected. Everyone expects it. And everyone says, oh, it doesn't matter that she's working 24-7. She's paid loads of money. You're completely not appreciated. <laughs> I'm making it sound awful. It's really, really not. But if you're going into it expecting, if some one of your drivers is you like to be told you're being, doing a great job, if one of your drivers is I'm going to affect change and they're all going to tell me, isn't it wonderful? You're wrong. <laughs> because, you know, you have to do these things because you want it to happen and not because you want the feedback and the pats on the backs because you will get no one saying thank you very much for my pay rise because they expect it, right? So I think... Be really clear about what it is that you want. If it's about the glamour and the title and the money, then I'd strongly advise that you don't become one because ultimately that becomes lower down the, the ladder. It's about, do you like change? Do you like transformation? Do you like leading people? Why do you like leading people? Not because you like telling them what to do, but because you actually want to change them for the better. You know, I really strongly believe that I show up every single day to make my employees' lives better and to make my customers' lives better. And that is and that is absolute truth, right? And I think it, it's lovely that you get the bigger pay packet and all that, that stuff, but it is the lowest thing on my list and not my driver as to why I get out of bed every single day. Because, you know, the, the previous role that I did was much quieter than this and I wasn't happy because it didn't have that pace of change. So I think be really clear about where why you want it and whether you want it because it comes with a lot of responsibility and you would say Ruth, that's probably the ultimate kind of piece of advice and anything else underneath that yeah I, I there was one other thing that I thought about when you asked me this question which is don't copy other CEOs be your own person right because I think we we typically listen to podcasts now listen to TED talks go oh I'm gonna be a Simon Sinek you know, I'm going to go, right, see him. He's brilliant. I do think he's brilliant, by the way. I, I, I watch him a lot. Um, but be your own style. Know who yeah. you are. Because the reason people generally follow you is because you are authentic and honest and yourself. And I'm coaching my CFO at the moment. We've done his development plan. And I am coaching him into becoming a CEO, maybe replacing me, don't know. But the first thing I said to him is don't copy me. You're your own person. You have your own style. Be that and understand where your blind spots are and, and put people and, and the, knowing your blind, blind spot doesn't mean changing your blind spot. Knowing your blind spot is the first thing. Filling it with somebody strong in that blind spot is the next thing because we can't be brilliant at all things all the time. 
So what I do is I know the bits that I'm weak at and I make sure that the, the person to my right is really strong at that thing that I'm weak at because it isn't possible to be brilliant at everything all of the time. We can't have all of the answers. So knowing your blind spot and putting the stronger people around you and then they can flag, oh, you're doing it. You're blind, you know, I'm, you've got your blind spot as being triggered. Is People keeping you honest is really important. But yeah, the biggest tip I would say is be yourself, be your own CEO and don't copy other people. Yeah, no, I completely um, can see that from you. And I also strongly agree. And I think what resonates with me is what you've just said is be your own person, have your own style and be that. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah, you don't have to change to be a CEO. I think a lot of people meet me, you'll see my interviews and go, oh, she's just normal. I go, what did you think I was going to be a robot? Definitely not. Definitely not. And Joe, you've been you throughout this uh, this uh, conversation we've had. You've been definitely not a robot. You've been you. You've been genuine. You've been honest. And um, I think another thing, actually, a strength of yours is you. You've kind of the humour that comes through even when you face the most adverse situations. So I think that's a real strength to your to you um, and to your to your bow in terms of what you do. So Joe, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I've loved it. I'm sure our listeners will love it too. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Our thanks to Jo for sharing her personal insights. And there are some great pieces of honest advice based on her experience over the last 25 years. When Jo talks about why she became a CEO, she talks about her journey, starting work at 16 and having a very strong inner drive to prove a point. The point being that you don't need to take what she refers to as a traditional route to be successful. Jo knew from a very early age that she wanted to be able to determine her own path, to be the driver of the bus and not be the passenger. And how for her it was critical to have a belief system and a vision of what you wanted to do. Jo refers to some of those people who have influenced her career, the advice and the coaching she's collated along the way and how they've all influenced and shaped her as a person and her career in some way. The team around her is crucial to her own success and she strongly believes that she is today the sum of people she has around her, allowing others, her team, to get on with their job, encouraging and supporting them to be transparent, lead with clarity and consistently building trust. Jo reflects on how change is constant and as the leader of the business, you have to consistently show up check in with yourself on a regular basis and when it comes to crisis management think of your worst scenario and plan for it for all of those aspiring leaders who want to gain a ceo position joe's advice is simple be clear about why you want it being a ceo is a lonely job and don't copy other ceos be your own person your own style and be that thanks joe it's been an absolute pleasure to chat If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our Meet the CEO channel and listen to other great leaders as they share their experiences and top tips. Look out for the next episode coming soon. Thanks for listening.